0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, there is an ancient Buddhist concept known as the Hungry Ghost. I've always found this pretty compelling. The hungry ghost is a creature with a giant stomach and a tiny little throat. So it's constantly hungry and can never get enough. That may sound familiar to you if you're a human being or if you're a human being, anything like me, this kind of insatiability, this background hum of constant insufficiency uh, that at least I feel and I think many others do. Obviously, because thousands of years ago, they came up with this idea of the hungry ghost. So on the show this week... We're going to talk about how many, if not all of us, are hungry ghosts, at least some of the time. And we're going to talk about what may be the antidote to this condition, which is the notion of enoughness. Our guest is Narayan Liebenson. She's a really well-respected Buddhist teacher. She's been the guiding teacher at a joint known as the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center in Cambridge, Massachusetts, an excellent place. She's been the guiding teacher there, or one of the guiding teachers there, since it opened in 1985. Uh, she's been training in various meditation traditions for 45 years, and she's got a new book called The Magnanimous Heart. Okay, so a lot of longtime listeners on the show will know that I have a rather complicated relationship with the word heart and many of the other in my view, kind of syrupy terms that are often invoked when people talk about meditation. Narayan, as you will hear, has no qualms about using what is sometimes referred to as heart-centric language. If, like me, you have any kind of aversion or allergy to this kind of stuff, I really urge you to fight through it because Narayan is, as you're going to hear, highly trained, uh, hardcore teacher who seems to me at least to be incapable of saying anything uninteresting. I've talked about this a lot on the show, that I'm kind of doing my best to transcend some of my less helpful biases, and sitting with a teacher like Narayan is actually pretty useful in this regard. So we'll get to Narayan in a second. First, one lightning quick item of business. Uh, speaking of heart-centered language, there's a new meditation up on the 10% Happier app. It's called Practicing Kindness, and it's from Oren Sofer. So go check that out. We want to feature that one this week. All right, back to Narayan Levinson. Uh Aside from Hungry Ghosts and my Many somewhat irrational issues with the word heart. We're also going to talk about the power of using our whole lives as a meditation practice instead of quarantining it to the cushion. We're going to talk about the importance of bringing female voices into the Dharma and the difference between letting be and letting go. And lastly, we're going to turn the voicemail section of the show this week over to Narayan to answer a couple of really fantastic questions from you about how to manage dreamlike states in meditation and how to use the meditative mindset to solve tough questions in life. And just before we dive in, one final note. I wanted to note that, uh, especially toward the beginning of this chat, you're going to hear me cut Narayan off a few times when she's speaking. It kind of took us a little while to get into the groove of the conversation. She's very thoughtful in the way she talks, and sometimes I thought she was finished saying what she was going to say before she was actually finished. So please know that my interruptions were accidental. Um, and uh, I'm working on that. Um, and luckily, after 45 years of meditation, Narayan is pretty patient. So uh, here we go. Narayan Liebenson. Nice to meet you.
1: Yes. Nice to meet you, too.
0: So how did you get into meditation?
1: Mm. Well, it really was on a continuum for me. I was really interested in how my mind was working when I was quite young and I was awake Later than the rest of my family, I just couldn't go to sleep. And I woke up earlier than anybody else. And I was quite interested in what was going on in my mind. And so I started to investigate and explore it. And I learned a lot when I was just lying there on my own, um, watching, observing. As a little girl. My mind, as a little girl. Exactly, yeah. I was brought up Catholic. And um, I also have a father who was Jewish, so the Jewish part maybe um, took off the edges of the Catholicism, and I was able to enjoy the um, beauty and the silence and the spaciousness of the churches that I was in, which was really quite wonderful. I'm so grateful for that that I had access to these silent um, spaces in which I could just be quiet and let the outer silence point to a kind of inner silence. So it really benefited me quite a lot. I wasn't so involved in the beliefs about Catholicism or the uh, mythology, but I was quite uh, taken by, quite drawn by the beauty of the silence. I wonder if
0: kids now... (laughs) If what? If kids now would have... If that would be resonant to any young person now, given that they'd have a supercomputer in their pocket. Uh,
1: I know, I know, I know. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, you had to get be bored a lot of the time, too, because there wasn't much going on. And that was really beneficial, because when you're bored, um, it's very, very close to a depth of silence that can be accessed if you allow yourself to be bored. So I don't know. You know, little kids these days. I don't. It's um, much more of a secular culture than it used to be. And um, to engage in and enjoy silence wherever you can find it, I would want that for for little kids now. It seems like a like there would be a hunger or a thirst for that.
0: I've heard it said from some well, the controversial <clears throat> meditation teacher. Chogyam Trungpa okay. yeah. has—he's uh, controversial for those who don't know who he is because yep. he drank himself to death and, yep. and yep. messed around with his followers. Right. Um, nonetheless, created a big thriving meditation community called yes. Shambhala. Yes. And I have friends of good friends of mine who are followers of his, and uh, he's mm-hmm. no longer with us. But he had a practice apparently called Cool Boredom, in which he actually asked meditators to cultivate
1: yeah. boredom. Yeah. 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 Makes sense to me. I mean, and and you don't have to if you're meditating. You're going to go through boredom as a stage. It's a phase of practice where you have to let yourself be deathly bored and ask yourself, am I going to die from this? You know? <laughs> <laughs> hasn't happened yet. It, but it, it moves you. Yeah. If you're if you're willing to stay in that space, it moves you into something quite profound, well, that, and quite beautiful, that, and that, quite freeing.
0: What I was going to say is that uh when I was so rudely talking over you, I got excited because I, I it is one of these things where we are so now so programmed to avoid boredom. Exactly. I remember when I oh got my, my first iPhone, I thought I will never be bored again and wow well, we now have we well, we never like boredom. we I don't think as yeah. a species really like it. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. something
1: we like stimuli yes, yes.
0: Uh, we're trained for the next to look for the next dopamine hit. We're always on the hunt. Yes and yes.
1: there's something about
0: <clears throat> cultivating boredom. Yes. Sitting there and just like, bring it on.
1: That's it. And, That's it.
0: And then you see it's not that bad. As you said, you won't die from it.
1: That's it. And and it's not really a cultivating, it's more that it's veiling over, <laughs> you know, the allowing natu- it. That, exactly, allowing it and seeing it as a covering over the natural luminescence of the heart. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Now, there's yeah. a lot to what you just said.
0: <laughs> what do you mean by that?
1: <laughs> I mean that the Buddha uh, spoke about uh, the heart being. Um, free already. The heart already is awakened, that there is freedom from um, greed, hatred, and delusion, but it's covered over by our habits and our patterns. And so with meditation, we can start to be aware of the habits and the patterns and that which doesn't serve us or anyone else, and then start to let that mist um, begin to dissolve into the light of awareness.
0: I remember once I was interviewing John Kabat-Zinn, yeah. his meditation teacher, um, yeah. and he was he was getting persnickety with me about language I was using, and uh. he said uh, he, there was this little <clears> half <throat> a phrase that he used, kind of off offhand, but it's always this was a decade ago, but it's always stuck in my mind. Mm. He said, "I have my own opinions about language." Well, mm-hmm. I have personally, I Dan have a a weird hang up about the word heart
1: because I don't
0: know what people mean when they say heart. Ah. I mean, I'm married. I'm the child of physicians and married to a physician. I I think of the actual heart. You mean the physical? Yes. When you say heart, heart. you mean mind.
1: I mean, yeah. I mean, there's this word cheetah, right, in in the teachings, Pali word, and it means heart mind. But um, really, in Western thinking, mind generally means thinking. And heart means something beyond feeling thinking well, it includes feelings, but it's also beyond feelings. When I say awakened heart, um it's not even though it sounds like a noun, it's not really a noun huh. it's it's um limitless awareness. let's call it that measureless awareness. We kind of got it got got into this quite. Beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so,
0: we, so when you said <clears throat> boredom and other habits are are covering up our natural luminous heart, or? yes,
1: natural natural luminosity of the heart or radiance of the heart of what is most important of um, of the of the sense of of freedom within that, whatever way the conditions are finding those conditions to be workable instead of intimidating or drowning in conditions, calming our minds, you know, calming, letting, letting thoughts thin out some, and that allowing for a kind of space and, um, and sense of, of preliminary contentment, which can then be a springboard into a deep investigation of what's most important to us. Yeah. There's, why are we here? Why are what we is here? most important to us? Right.
0: One of my first guests, one of our first guests on the show, was a woman named Lama TsoMo, who is a. Oh. Uh, uh, she's in the Midwest somewhere, I think. It's been a while since I met her. Anyway, mm-hmm. she's a really interesting meditative practitioner in the Tibetan tradition. Yeah, and she said that the Tibetan definition for enlightenment, or the Tibetan phraseology around enlightenment, is something like. A clearing away okay. and a bringing forth.
1: Oh, beautiful. It seems to be what you're describing. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I, I like, I like. even though I'm in the Theravadan lineage and I feel quite at home here, I like the language from the different lineages, the different Buddhist lineages. Because every way of talking about these things kind, kind of opens things up in terms of being able to understand more deeply and clearly according to our own experiences. You know, meditation, we take our life, we take our own experiences, and then we move from there. We're not trying to transcend. We're not trying to get rid of anything. We're not trying to not be human. Mm-hmm. We're attempting to use all of it you know, as material, really, for awakening.
0: And one of the things I like about the Buddha, as a dyed-in-the-wool skeptic, personally, <laughs> yeah, yeah, is uh, yeah. <laughs> he said, you know, come see for yourself.
1: Exactly. Ehi pasiko, come and see. Come and see for yourself how things actually are. Not how you think things are, or what other people have told you.
0: Or what oh I God. told you. Or what, here's a here's a quote unquote religious leader saying, Don't take what I say. That's
1: it. That's it. And I think I think those of us who are trying to follow after him, um, you know, or kind of in that same vein of don't believe me. But um take up the methods, take up the practice, take up the study, use your life, bring it all together, sit, you know, meditate. In, in a classical way of using that word, bring it all together and um, see what happens if you have any trust or, or faith whatsoever in something other than what you have experienced up till now.
0: We are going to dive much more deeply into this, for me, somewhat problematic word of heart and um, your thesis around a magnanimous <clears throat> heart. We're yeah. going to dive very deeply into that. That's the title of your new book. But yeah. before we do that. I want to talk a little bit more about your bi- uh, biography because okay. we, we had you in church as a girl. <laughs> right. we, then I we, I derailed you as I do with many of the, my guests. Can you just take me from there to actually starting to meditate?
1: Yeah, yeah. So so church and libraries. My parents used to, for whatever the reason, drop me off at churches and libraries, and oftentimes it seemed like they would forget to pick me up again. So it would be I would be in these situations roaming around on my own feeling this vast spaciousness and silence and um, feeling like I could explore anything, that nobody was going to stop me from investigation, from looking into things more deeply as I really wanted to do. And uh, after that, oh, and then maybe when I was about 11, I found a book in the library that was about um, rebirth and yoga. And when I read the part about rebirth, I thought, oh, my God. That explains everything, you know? I just I just had this, I mean, who knows? I'm not saying that I know anything about rebirth or other lives. or I don't find that important. But it did open up something bigger than I had imagined, that other people were exploring their psyches as well. Hmm. Yeah. And then the yoga, I started trying to do it. And, um, you know, I, I lit a candle and tried to concentrate. And then all these other... So that's
0: not yoga, like uh, a body... No, no. You're you're talking about a yogic yogic. meditative... Exactly,
1: exactly. So I started trying to find all these ways to concentrate, you know. One way that I found was just to repeat my name over and over and over again. And if I did, it would open out into something beyond my name. You know how little kids are so identified with their names? Mm -hmm. Right. So that was a technique that I found early on as a way to open out into... Something so you the name as a mantra bigger. that calms the that's mind it. and
0: that opens uh, up that's, into something more special. That's
1: exactly it. And because of the identification with the name, it would move into a non-identification, you know, huh. just in doing it over and over again. So I found these kind of quirky ways, and I didn't have anybody to talk to. So I found these quirky ways of working, working with my mind because I way, had a should- lot of fear.
0: Is your given uh, uh, sorry? I would keep interrupting. I apologize. That's okay. I just get we're, excited we're and really, curious, so then yeah, I yeah, I, yeah. Um, uh, anyway, yeah. I promise to stop doing that. Is your given name Helen or Narayan?
1: It's um. Well, <laughs> Helen was my mother's name, so that was my given name. Narayan was given to me by Yogi Bhajan when I was in my early twenties, nineteen twenty. Gotcha. Yeah. So the name now you're it's on my social security card and everything. It's. The, as for yeah, it's your official name now. <laughs> yes, but you, not for the first twenty years. Right. So when yes. you were a little girl, repeating yes.
0: your name to yourself, it was Helen.
1: No, it was Janet. Oh, yeah, or okay. Jan. So I would repeat Jan, 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 huh. Jan. Yeah, yeah, and then it would open up into non-Jan somehow. The non-Janness of mm. of um, experience.
0: You said something about fear when I was talking. Mm. Over you.
1: Yeah. Partly why I wanted to um, look into my mind and investigate was because I had a lot of experiences of fear when I was little. And it's not like anything was happening. It was more fear of someone breaking into the house or, you know, being murdered in my sleep or things like that. And I think common fears that, that kids had, but they were very strong for me. And because I was up later and up earlier, I was alone with the fears much of the time. So part of my interest was in seeing if I could understand fear enough to be free from it. So I investigated it in different ways, and so that was a that was a, a propelling um, force for me. You know, in my book, I talk about uh, dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, uns, um, suffering, as being. Uh, like a constant squeeze. This was one of my teachers, Ajahn Mahabua, who defined the first noble truth as a constant squeeze. Feeling this constant squeeze. He tells what the first noble truth. Yeah. Is. <laughs> sorry. It it is this dukkha and it means that things are not quite right. You know, sometimes things are are incredibly wrong, but even when things are good. There's some sense of uneasiness or discomfort or, you know, knowing that they're not going to stay that way, that everything is changing, everything is temporary. And then the second noble truth, trying to make things permanent, trying to hang on to the temporary, you know, trying to push away or hold on to or identify with our experiences brings about more um, more suffering, more pain within the, quote, heart. <laughs> and then in my book I actually changed the um changed I, I don't write this out but I changed the uh, noble truths around the third section of the book is about the path itself how to how to free oneself you know and then the fourth section has to do with with liberation you know non-grasping and meditative questioning asking the right questions that might um bring us to a new way of perceiving and a new way of understanding and really a new way of living and embodying our understanding, right? It's not enough to just understand. We have to actually embody and live our understanding as best as we can from moment to moment Mm -hmm. in all circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's not fragmented, right? So it's not a fragmented path.
0: You were t- I think we launched down this road because you were talking about this term, a constant squeeze. Yeah.
1: One of my teachers, early on, I practiced in a Thai forest um, meditation center in northeast Thailand with a teacher named Ajahn Mahabua. And he had these very pithy definitions for um, Pali words. Pali is the language that the um, that the teachings were written down in about 200 or 300 years after the Buddha died. And this word um, dukkha, or the fact, this first noble truth that there is suffering, there is unsatisfa- unsatisfactoriness, things are oftentimes not the way we want them to be, things are not perfect, all of this. He defined this as this sense of, of a squeeze, that we feel squeezed mm. in life, Right. Yeah. And he called it a constant squeeze because sometimes we can forget it when things are going really well, but it always comes back. It always comes back. And when we meditate, it's so interesting to me because these days with meditation being so popular, you think you're going to sit down and you're going to feel better or you're going to feel more peaceful or calmer or more balanced. But what happens is that, yes, you do, and you feel the squeeze even more, <laughs> which is really good news. It doesn't seem like good news. And I think it's good for beginning meditators to know that because it's shocking if you don't know that it's normal. Yeah. You know this, right? Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: There's an expression, hurts more, suffer less.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so so it's cushioned by calm. I mean, it's all workable because the calmness cushions the the squeeze or the pain and allows it to, um, to be more visible, to reveal itself. And as it reveals itself, that's the only way that we can let go of, of suffering, is if we see what needs to be let go of. If we don't see, we're just crunched. You know, we're, we're walking around unconscious, we're tense, we're hurting others, and we don't even know why, and we don't even want to, and we are anyway. And we're not happy ourselves. So if we can see this squeeze and experience this squeeze and be brave enough, um, you know, as long as we have enough loving kindness and compassion as our allies, because we don't want to go in there alone, but with compassion and, and um, loving kindness, we can gently, lovingly, with friendliness, embrace the squeeze. Embrace the squeeze. Embrace the squeeze. Embrace the
0: squeeze. It's almost redundant in some way. <laughs> um, the the let it
1: let the squeeze start to uncoil itself, rather than squeezing more.
0: Well, that's the question mm. I was just going to get at because okay. you say then you can let it go, yeah. and letting go is such mm. a commonly used phrase yeah. in in meditative circles. I know, but it can seem mystifying to a. Uh, the uninitiated because what do you mean okay so now i'm sitting on the cushion Mm -hmm. a little calmer then some of my ancient pains start to anxiety yes yes come up What do you mean let it go what is that actually i think what people mean is let it be
1: there is no doubt about that and i actually do address that in my book because letting it go seems like we have all this agency i am gonna let go and we don't we don't we have to see enough for what is gripping us to let go of itself. So it is much more a matter of letting be rather than letting go. Letting go feels like it's pushing what we don't like away. Letting be is friendliness, um, bowing down to, uh, embracing, extending the hand of friendship to so that we love it up and then it lets go of us.
0: That's so counterintuitive. I, know, I don't want to love up my ancient anger at
1: uh, I know, but it's know, the only teachers. thing that works. You know, anger, hatred, uh, applied to, to hatred doesn't doesn't bring about anything more than hatred. I mean, it's practical. Only loving kindness is going to help. You know, brought to anything, it's the only thing that's going to help. But again, you know, ehipasiko. Test it out. Find out for yourself whether that's true or not. And that's where I think some of the um, courage has to come in, that we have to develop a kind of courage that we're willing or desperate enough. That's okay, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That's yeah. all right, too. That's fine motivation to be desperate enough to go in a counterintuitive direction.
0: So, was it desperation for you that finally put, brought you to the cushion?
1: Hmm. Well, after the experiences as a child, and then after these yogic experiences,, a um, little bit of a gap for, you know, drug sex and rock and roll, <laughs> and then moving into a more contemplative um, life as a yogi, um, Kundalini Yogi I got in- involved with with a teacher named um, uh, Yogi. Oh, boy, I'm forgetting his name. Yogi Bhajan. Y- Yogi Bhajan, yeah. And so I did that for a few years. And I was working in a restaurant. I was the waffle maker in a restaurant called the Golden Temple in Harvard Square. And everybody, everybody from all spiritual traditions in the Cambridge area, which was quite alive with spiritual teachings at that time. When was it the 70s? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was the 70s, Yes. So many teachers coming into town and offering what they had to offer and then leaving town and all of this.
0: Did they stop for waffles before they, they left?
1: They stopped. Oftentimes they stop for waffles, yes. <laughs> 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 so I got to meet them. So I got to meet some um, Buddhists at that time as well. And I was drawn to what I was being, um, to the kinds of conversations that the different Buddhists were having. And I um, I bumped into someone that maybe you're familiar with, Larry Rosenberg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a colleague. He's 86 right now, still teaching a bit. Uh, wants to die in the saddle, which I'm responsible for. So <laughs> I want him to teach as long as he can.
0: Legendary yeah. meditation teacher, founder yes, of the yes. Cambridge Insight Meditation yes, Center. Yes,
1: yeah. yes, right, yes. So we, um, we met by mistake. I mistook him for someone else. <laughs> And we started a conversation. And he had just uh, come back from a three-month retreat at IMS, Insight Meditation Society. I was so taken by this idea that one did not have to ordain. You didn't have to become a monk or a nun, which I've never been interested in. That you could live a deeply contemplative life uh, in the midst of your ordinary domestic life. And so he was... He was modeling that for me, that he was just an ordinary guy. And he had just come back from a three-month retreat. So sign me up. you mm. know. I was just so mm. taken and drawn by that. And then shortly after that, I did sit my first three-month retreat at IMS. And then when Larry and I started the center... We had oh, you this idea. With him. I co-founded it. Oh, so I shouldn't have said yeah. he was that's the founder. Okay. I should that's have okay. said co-founder. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. my apologize. <laughs> so our idea when we began the center was to have a place where people didn't go on these long retreats and then come back completely discombobulated. Mm. You know, how do I live? how How am I with my partner? How can I be with my kids? How can I be in my job? In a contemplative way rather than just getting completely caught up again right because you know what it's like to be on a retreat you know and the re-entry sometimes can be a bit on the bumpy side
0: i'm more familiar with what it's like to be cu- completely caught up
1: <laughs> i see i see okay so so this center is for those who don't go on retreats and are just completely caught up mm-hmm. as well yeah like, so it's for like both. exactly immediacy of contemplation immediacy of freedom like not like Practice years and years and years, and then you get somewhere. But right now,
0: just to amplify uh, just a word you used there, yeah, freedom. Yes, because that can sound a little grandiose. Freedom, you know, we're gonna, freedom. you know, but well, yeah, it can sound yeah, 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 not yeah. only like yeah. slightly political, but also yeah, from yeah. a spiritual sense, mm-hmm. a little grandiose or privacy But when you say freedom, it really is going back to so letting it be.
1: Totally, it's totally ordinary. You know, it's not at all um, anything special. It's not special. It's recognizing um, our, our discontent, and then it's turning towards it in a kind and sustained way so that we can find our way through it into greater spaciousness. If you want to use the word spaciousness instead of inner freedom. But I'm using the word inner freedom instead of this big word enlightenment. You know? <laughs> I'm using the word inner freedom or awakening. And this is what is possible for us as we're conversing right now to understand things differently, both of us as we're, as we're talking, to understand things differently than we had. And I just that's say, the possibility.
0: I just say in terms of that possibility, I just yeah. say sort of not being yanked around by your ego and your emotions. Sure.
1: That's fine. And your reactions, right? Being able mm-hmm. to pause mm-hmm. and recognize, um, be in the body, you know, be aware of what's going on in your body. And being aware of how your mind is operating, not having to say everything you're thinking, (laughs) not having to believe everything you're thinking, you know, (laughs) being aware of thinking as thinking Mm -hmm. and not being as fascinated and enchanted with one's own thoughts.
0: And instead, you can actually become fascinated with the process of thinking, the yes, process yes, of the mind, the yes, sort of infrastructure yes. rather than the little Absolutely.
1: Thoughts. That's it. Yeah. And you can also be fascinated with that that affection that begins to bubble up within what I would just want to call the heart right now. You know, that, that sense of, of well-being, that sense of, of being happy when other people are happy, um, that sense of wanting to alleviate uh, suffering wherever you find it. It's so great. You know, it's just, and it just begins to bubble up naturally because it's our true nature. It's not something that we're creating or concocting. We are cultivating it, but it's already there in seed like form. Bringing forth what's it's already bringing there. forth yes. bringing forth what's already there. Yeah. I, I so want... that's such a delight, you know, when when that begins to happen and and then we see, ah, oh, there's another way. Huh. There's another way to live rather than cutthroat or um competitive or comparing or any of that. Room for all of us.
0: I want to be clear, um, just like John Cabot's in, I may have my opinions, but I don't, I'm not militaristic about it. You should not put quote around heart. You should just go for it and okay. say heart as much as you want. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm trying to attune to you. Yeah, don't attune that much. <laughs> you should okay. do, do better at ignoring me. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, the, what you're talking about, though, is so resonant for me and also mysterious. This idea in Buddhism and I think other spiritual traditions, but Buddhism is the one I know the most, mm-hmm. that our fundamental our fundamental nature I know. is loving. Yes, um, I know. Uh, it's a
1: leap of faith.
0: Yeah, I, and yet yeah. I had a guest on recently who I, I assume you know, Helen Torkov, the yes. founder of Tricyphil. I've never met her, but I have oh, a lot of
1: respect for her. Okay, so
0: she's done yeah. great work, uh, and she recently yeah. wrote a book, uh, co-wrote a book, I think she probably wrote it, but it was based on the experiences of a famous monk named Mingyur Rinpoche. I just
1: had an interview conversation with him, a public conversation on Friday with Mingir Rinpoche. He's adorable. We had a wonderful yeah. time. Yeah,
0: And The book is called In Love with the World. Yes. And it's about many mm-hmm. things, but one of the things is that he had a near-death experience, and, right. and as his attachments were falling away, as his body was decompensating – he really got in touch with this idea that all that's left as this stuff gets stripped away is love. And he was yes, in yes. love with the world. And Helen and I had an interesting conversation that I'm going to now ask you some of the same questions to see what you come up with. <clears throat> that, like this, you said it before, it's a leap of faith. I mean, is there any real evidence that for sure if you strip away all the habitual thought patterns and stimuli yeah. that what's left here is love?
1: You know, when I was growing up, there was this idea of original sin, and that did not serve the sense of original sin, of my original sin and everybody else's original sin did not serve me. And when I I opened to this path and I heard this idea, it was completely topsy-turvy. But there was a sense for me, all these things are intuitive. There was a sense for me of, ah, it was the same thing of, of being 11 and and having this mind-blowing idea about life being much bigger than I had been told. So it was the same kind of thing. It was like topsy-turvy. Oh, this actually makes more sense to me. You know, I don't know if it's totally true or not, but it makes more intuitive sense to me. And it makes more intuitive sense because if we're really um, quiet and if we look back on our life, all of us, I think, have had glimpses every so often of this that we dismiss, that we cover over, that we just move on, that we just look at our iPhone instead of um, appreciating and sitting with and saying, "Ah, you know, maybe this is what the Buddha was speaking about." So I don't think this is foreign. I do think that, and on retreats sometimes, or even forget about retreats, just daily sitting, it has a way of reconnecting us to the sense of, um, of inner inner peace, inner goodness, intrinsic peacefulness. Yeah. And the methods, you know, the techniques and methods of the practice, they're ways to train ourselves to be able to access it. And then you have to have, when I call it courage, you have to have some degree of trust in where you're going. Or, we were, we were laughing about desperation, Right or desperation, mm-hmm. but something that makes you willing to at least um, look in a different way. Use the methods and the techniques to see, does it access? right? And then you, you understand a little bit, and it really makes you want to continue. And then you continue, then you have your own experiences, not what somebody else is telling you. Because it's interesting with Rinpoche, he obviously grew up in a Buddhist family, and everybody was telling him, yes, this is the way it is. Yes, 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 yeah. yes. Um, intrinsic peacefulness, you know, all of this. But for him to ap- actually know it, he had to go through what he went through. Yeah. And then he knew it for himself with with complete confidence. And that is what all of us need to do, each of us in our own way. I don't think it has to be what he did. Um, each of us in our own way, in our lives as they are, developing Complete confidence.
0: But there's a difference between having intrinsic common and clarity and intrinsic, maybe there isn't a difference, but mm-hmm. it, it seems a little different to my unenlightened mind. You, in the preceding paragraphs, um, were talking about, in, in an intertwined way, between intrinsic lovingness yeah, yeah, yeah. and intrinsic sort of common clarity.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just using words. I'm just using words <laughs> to point to uh, what does not have words. And we have to use words. I'm a teacher. I'm using words all the time. Words are wonderful. But it's pointing to the wordless. It's pointing to the nonverbal. It's pointing to the non-conceptual. You nonconceptual. Know, so we have to be careful. You know, we can use words up to a point, and then we drop off. The words drop away. And we have to trust that dropping away and that silence and that love that is there in the midst of the silence
0: can i say a few words and see what you think of him sure i don't know what's going to come out but okay. um, yeah, yeah. i've been thinking <clears> as <throat> we've been talking about words uh, so I'm, my job is actually to be a little bit persnickety about words buddhists are very persni- are very you know precise in can their be. language because mm-hmm. they can be right. can be very precise in their language because we're describing very subtle yes concepts, I'm precise or picky for different reasons, maybe. But I see my job on the planet primarily as sort of re-languaging some of these concepts to make them uh, attractive to skeptical people like me. I see. So I that's see. where I get weird around heart. Yes. Because A, I don't actually know what exactly it's referring to. I get a little anatomical about it. Uh-huh, and, and B, right. it's a little syrupy for... I think, some populations, yes. myself included. yes, um, Not so much now. I'm a little bit pretending now. Um, but but, um, <laughs> but definitely the premeditation me would, like, heart, what is that? I, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, it would seem a little ooey-gooey to yes, me. Yes, yes,
1: yes. And yet,
0: this is where I'm going to bring things around to what you were just talking about. I think one of the failures of my first book and my initial, and there were many failures, uh, but one of the failures or insufficiencies in my initial approach to talking about meditation and my initial approach to meditating itself Mm -hmm. is that I was really attracted to the calm and clarity aspect, which is, okay, I've calmed down a little bit. I can see my mind and see more clearly. Oh, yes, this experience, this emotion is arising, anger or whatever, Mm -hmm. and I don't have to be owned by it. Yes. But there's another big piece that you're talking about in a very robust way, which is this innate friendliness or loving nature, which, of course, only (laughs) intertwines with the calm and clarity in a way that creates a virtuous cycle.
1: Exactly. That's beautiful, virtuous cycle. It's a beautiful way to put it. I love that.
0: So I'm really starting to think about how can I, A, explore this for myself because I'm writing a book about kindness now, and Uh, B, how can I talk about it? Yes. And I will say that I went on a... A loving kindness meditation retreat. Okay, a couple months ago with a great teacher named Spring Washam,
1: mm-hmm.
0: who I really love, and it was a one-on-one retreat. Um, what
1: does one-on-one mean?
0: Just me and her. Oh, yeah, it was pretty cool. Oh, well, there okay. was there were two other people there. One was cooking, and the th- and the fourth was filming it for. Um, oh. uh, a, a, we're gonna use it in the Ten Percent Happier see. app, and I'm I am writing see. about it. Okay, and so she agreed to do it. Um, yeah, because she's a very patient person, putting up with a very tough. Uh, yogi, and I started to get the sense that, ha- call it what you want, heart, sub-intellectual, uh, you, intuition, uh, gut, yeah, whatever yeah. you want to call whatever it.
1: Whatever you want to call it, yes. But,
0: but there's, there's and we may not know for sure that our fundamental nature is loving, yeah. but my intuition is closely aligned with yours for the following reason.
1: Hmm.
0: I do know that we're wired to seek pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it feels better when you're acting out of the heart, for lack of a better word. It feels better when you're being friendly, caring, compassionate, kind yes. Yes. than it does when you're being aggressive, dismissive, yes. disrespectful, et cetera. Et it's et cetera. tense. It's tense yes.
1: when you're being disrespectful and harsh, and it's relaxed and enjoyable. When we're connected, I mean, it's the difference between disconnection and connection. It's the difference between thinking that we are all separate beings walking around, each of us trying to satisfy our own needs versus an interconnectedness where it just looks like we're separate. But in reality, um, we're sharing. I mean, you and I right now, a lot of sharing is happening on a level that we cannot be um, aware of or that is not visible to the naked eye mm-hmm. let's just say mm-hmm. yeah i know scientists would would agree with me on that but the buddhist got, the buddha got it before before the scientists got there in terms of the interconnectedness of us all so of course it's going to feel better to be loving and kind and and connected than disconnected and harsh and unkind yeah by the way i love the title of your book because it's so humble. Ten percent. Not even fifty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful title.
0: Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. Having trouble figuring out the title for the next book. Um
1: Ian, can I yeah, also say that um, in terms of your moving into this new dimension of, of entertaining um what you're talking about in terms of heart or gut or intuition or love. Um when I was younger, as a younger teacher, and didn't have as much confidence as I have now, I would veer away from the word heart, trying to fit into kind of kind of um, the suttas in a certain way. But as we grow as yogis, as practitioners, we have to be honest and we have to be authentic. And what we are all offering, whether we're teachers or practitioners, we're offering ourselves, we're offering our lives. And so my language has just gotten in, more in tune with what I actually know hmm. rather than trying to fit into a model, you know, which, which you know, really was more male teachers when I first began. <laughs> and there's a, there's a feminine, there's another voice that is coming out differently now. And um, it's one reason I wrote my book. I, I felt that there needed to be more, more um, feminine voices in, in the Dharma world. People um, asked me about that, and I felt like I needed to do my part.
0: Yeah, and men are less likely, although <clears> I know <throat> certainly there are some men that are coming to mind right now, but they may, per- may be less likely to use language like heart, although both Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein, two prominent male Buddhist teachers, have written books with the word heart in,
1: title, in the title. Yes. yes, yes, and I'm not trying to make this huge distinction because, of course, the male psyche is equally loving. There's nothing, no difference in that way, but but the experiences on life are different. Mm-hmm. Yeah? You know? that's that's different to grow up um, differently. It helps to have the voice in the greater dharma discourse. I feel.
0: Why do you think it is that male voices seem to have dominated the meditation slash dharma world? Just because <gasps> male. I just seem to dominate everything.
1: (laughs) I just think um, I think it's changing and I think it's changing quite rapidly, actually, because when I first began as a teacher, there weren't many women teachers and now there are many. So I think it's just the way things have been. Things are changing now, but it's the way things have been in terms of Buddhism um, being a, a patriarchal religion like every other
0: I mean the Buddha struggled with sexism I mean he he didn't allow uh, women into the ranks mm. for well a while.
1: first of all you know and you can say this about anything right um but first of all his words were not written down until 200 to 300 years after that's always my wiggle room here <laughs> <laughs> I can't I can't accept him as enlightened which I completely believe in. Um, and think that there was sexism too it doesn't it doesn't doesn't work it doesn't intuitively it doesn't make sense to me that you would leave a huge group of beings out it makes no sense yeah so i think it was that he was trying his best in a world in which any moving in the direction of women being seen as equal to to men was really hard and i felt that he he did his best in the time period that he was alive in.
0: Per, according to the scriptures, which again mm. were written down hundreds of years after the man yeah. himself died, yeah. the story, if, I, if memory serves, is that he was kind of cajoled by a family member mm-hmm. into ordaining women as yes. nuns. Yes, he had all these monks, mm-hmm. and right. then he did build a pretty large cadre of them. But you know, the historical historically, they were kind of second class citizens, and in some Buddhist communities still, women are
1: Oh classed, my so. goodness, that's for sure. And what I, I have a problem understanding now is that there's a thriving um, community of monks and still, in Theravada Buddhism, women can't be ordained. And I don't understand, that, that has to change. I don't understand how that has any conscience to it. Um, you can rely on the suttas to say, the Buddha said this, the Buddha said that. But here we are now in, in modern life. and uh, to, to I have never wanted to be a nun. I've never wanted to be ordained. But it has an impact on lay women as mm-hmm. well. You know, When I found this out, it was so shocking to me as a young woman. And not that I wanted to, to go there, not that I wanted to ordain, but it still had an impact on my psyche of, oh, what's what's up with this? Mm-hmm. What's, what's happening here? And I still can't say that I understand it. And I do know it will change. It's just going to take time
0: more 10% happier after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com happier today. To get 10% off your first month, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you. Because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. So we've ta- uh, you've mentioned your book. Let's get into that. You c- you titled it "Magnanimous Heart." Yes. What does that mean?
1: Mm. Well, it's based on something that Dogen, who was a 13th century Zen master, said. And he speaks about the magnanimous heart. Um, He says, Magnanimous heart is like a mountain, stable and impartial. Exemplifying the ocean, it is tolerant and views everything from the broadest perspective. So it's a heart of generosity. It's a heart of limitless spaciousness. It's a heart of vulnerability. I'm using my own words now, not you know, I don't know whether he would totally agree with all this. But it's a heart that is porous, that allows everything to come in, all experiences to come in, and also allows them to leave without resistance. So like a swinging door. you know, The door is open. You let all of life in. You also let it be, and embrace it, and find a way to befriend whatever experience is happening, and then it leaves on its own. You know, so you're not accumulating experiences. Things don't build up within. You don't have the list of, you know, things from the past that you have to correct or change or or fix. You're not treating yourself like an object that needs to be fixed. There's this. Um, Immense or vast uh, way of viewing yourself and everyone and um, this world, sensing yourself as as nature rather than separate from nature. So magnanimous heart, room for everything, and learning you know learning from everything that happens rather than um, thinking that this is my practice, but this is not my practice. Everything is my practice. Everything that happens is something that can be understood and learned from differently and integrated.
0: I I can imagine two responses to this. Mm -hmm. One would be, that sounds awesome. (laughs) I wish I had this spaciousness, calm, generosity, loving Mm -hmm. capacity available to me, but you're going to have to give me a massive hit of clonopin or Valium or psilocybin (laughs) in order to get there. So how do you get what you're talking about? And I can imagine another reaction of, I don't want to let the world in in that way. The world is, is... Cruel and um, has already perhaps shown me whoever this fictitious person is. I'm conjuring a lot of cruelty, and so I'm, I'm unwilling to uh, cultivate the porousness that you describe.
1: Yes, well, I want to. I want to just speak about um, Eddie Hillison, who died in Auschwitz at the age of 29. She didn't have a choice, you know, because of of the time period in which she was living, and because she was Jewish. She didn't have a choice, and um, she wrote this. You know, she had a very powerful practice. I don't, I don't know all the details of the practice, but she had a powerful practice. Some of which include the writings included the writings of Rilke, which, as you might know, is always about turning towards the difficult and befriending the seemingly negative forces. So this is what she says.
0: Mm-hmm. You're reading out of your book. Now. I am. Yes.
1: If you don't understand while you're here, and she means in a concentration camp, that all outer experiences are like a passing show as nothing beside the great splendor inside us, then things can look very bleak here indeed. She's talking about Magnanimous Heart. This great splendor that she's speaking about is Magnanimous Heart. And she was able to access it and know it in the worst of possible situations. I find this very inspiring. Yeah, I find it inspiring.
0: What's the mechanism by which we can know it?
1: I do think that the Buddha's methods and techniques are so powerful and so potent, and you know that they are yourself, right? So, so employing the methods and techniques as well as studying the principles of the practice. So we're not just method oriented. You know, it's not prescriptive, but we have this, this wide um, view, this vast perspective, where we're learning about the principles and the, um, kind of the concepts of the Buddhist teachings, I think are really, is, is really important to understand ethics to understand the importance of steadying um, the mind, to understand the, um, the essential nature of wisdom and compassion. You know, the Noble Eightfold Path is, is essential to learn about and study. And then the third component is living our life and using all experiences in our lives as practice itself. So I think those those three components are are the crucial ones in terms of knowing magnanimous heart within yourself. So it's not just a rumor or a nice idea,
0: <laughs> or the result of the aforementioned pound of Valium. Um, yeah, well,
1: yes, yes, and and so much reliance on um, drugs these days yes. in so many different ways. Yes. Little kids reliant yeah. on drugs, yeah. So So to to find a way to shift out of that with great care, with the understanding and compassion that people are reliant on drugs because of so much suffering. Yeah. You know, but that it's not it's not the only way.
0: Do you think after all these years of practice on your end that your heart is truly magnanimous or do you allow all experiences to come and go through a revolving door or
2: do you get caught <laughs> up
1: sometimes I have a... Um, I guess there would be a foundation there of trust. I have a lot of trust at this point. I have a lot of, um, of confidence in the path of practice that it's seen me through immense ups and downs in my life. So I've, had a, I've had quite a rich life, I would say, and a very diverse life. And the practice and the dharma have held me up Every time, it's never, it's never let me down. Ever since I began to practice, so, so I do have have that kind of trust.
0: But yeah. uh, you, you may have a bad day where it's it's not working as well. It,
1: never a day, you know. Uh, it's never, it's never a day. Yeah, it's it's a moment, right? And then it might be another moment. It, it, but it's it's not like a a day, right? The concept of a day.
0: You you talk in the book about enduring. Not that long ago, both the death of your father and a divorce.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, five or six years ago now. Yeah, maybe six years ago.
0: And now. and when you say the practice hasn't let you down,
1: oh, it was I. It, it was like a almost like a testing. You know that here, um, this immensity of grief, and I kind of bring it on. You know the sense of bring it on. I've been practicing for this length of time. I do have. A great deal of trust, but here I am being challenged. I mean, it was almost like like um, Rinpoché's near death experience. Hmm. Everybody's got their near death experience, and for me, um, for me, perhaps it was along those lines of, of near death because there was there was so much that was going on, and there was so much grief, and. Practice, practice, practice through it because of the trust in my previous practice experiences. Um, it allowed something deeper to begin to emerge, and something even more trustworthy to happen in the years since. But well, take us inside because your, of having to go through it.
0: Take us inside your mind, then. So you say, practice, practice, practice. You would sit. The grief would well up, and and how, what would you do?
1: Um, yes, this the sitting practice was quite a refuge. And some, yeah, and it isn't for everyone. I, I do know that because of so many years of, of being with practitioners and teachers and, you know, the Dharma community, that it isn't for everyone. But for me, the sitting practice has always been a very real refuge. So um, it's almost like I just get into the posture and I'm quiet. And in Zen, sometimes they say the posture is enlightenment itself and i've always had had that kind of sense of just just getting into the posture just be quiet don't be looking around don't be trying to change anything or fix anything just stay completely still and quiet within yourself and then it'll all take care of itself so and that's my basic practice is not doing anything <laughs> and
0: <laughs> what do you mean by that
1: i mean just sitting and letting everything be there that is already there anyway.
0: So you don't and anchor not, on the breath?
1: Not not really, no. I mean, the breath is always there, right? As long as I'm alive, there is breath. I can count on the breath being there. But I don't, um, every so often, I might use, use the breathing as a touchstone. But most of the time, breath is there just as a nice help and as just a, signaling that life is still happening, whatever else is going on, life is happening, sense of the body just sitting, and then letting the mind do whatever it wants to do, but not getting involved, not getting involved.
0: I want to be clear because some Mm -hmm. of our listeners might be thinking, okay, what she's describing sounds totally impossible because Mm. if I sat without – you know, trying to hone in on the breath or using a noting practice to note everything that comes up, I would be off, you know, cooking, uh, you know, planning lunch or whatever it Yes, is. You've been doing this for a long time. You have a base of concentration. I think it's just important to point that out. I
1: agree with you very much because I wouldn't, I don't teach in this way. I teach having a touchstone. I teach um, having an anchor of the breathing or sound or the entire body just sitting and then gradually expanding to whatever is happening. So, yes, um, it's developmental. You know, it's developmental. It's just important to recognize that it can develop, right? That this is where throwing yourself into the practice and sustaining it over time so that it's your life and not just something you do from time to time matters, really matters in terms of greeting the enormous... um, joys and sorrows of life in a way that is meaningful.
0: That's going to be a challenge, a challenging, I think, in a positive sense, challenging statement for, I'm guessing now, because I'm not in the minds of all the people who listen to the show, but I think for some listeners Mm -hmm. who are, you know, just trying to, you know, at this point maybe dipping their toes in or just feeling proud, I think justifiably for Uh maintaining a uh, five-minute most-day practice, but you're saying, no, 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 it's the whole of life.
1: Yes, but I'm also not saying no, no, no. I'm saying five minutes is great. Five, and, five, and. Yes. Yes, sorry. <laughs> no buts in this. Yes. I'm saying and five minutes out of a day. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And not to limit yourself, not to think that it's more than what it is either, you know, to recognize that this is a vast world of Dharma, that it's it's so rich these days. In terms of what one can partake in and learn and who you can learn from and all of that, it's extraordinary and so many contemporary Dharma books that translate the teachings in ways that are more contemporary, so you know it's a it's it's so rich right now. I would just encourage those who are happy with the five minutes to be happy with those five mm-hmm. minutes and feel good about it and and, um, you know, sustain those five minutes, but just know that there's a much bigger world that um, that one can find one's way into his world as well, not to limit yourself. It's really about that. It's not about good, bad or good yogi. You know, this is like bad dog. You know, it's not like that or comparing yourself to anyone else. It's recognizing what is available and um, the significance of being alive right now is something so precious.
0: I had prepared a list of questions. I doubt I'm going to get to all of them because I am, Mm. to use a term, mindful of your time. Um, And I want to get to some listener questions. Mm. Usually I take the questions, but when there's a great teacher here, I like to to let the teacher do it. Um, But there's one question from my list I want to ask before we bring in the voicemails. Okay. Um, You invoked the name earlier of uh, this great... Thai teacher named Ajahn Mahabua. That's the, yeah, that's the honorific Ajahn given to great Thai teachers, Ajahn Mahabua. And you you ha- used a phrase called that he um, used, which is constant squeeze. Life is like yes. a constant squeeze. Yes. But there's another phrase that you invoke of his I in the book know. that I wanted to get you to talk about. Yeah. Enoughness.
1: Exactly. So so it's really brilliant. You know his his definition of dukkha. This word that means unsatisfactoriness, things not being the way we want them to be, sometimes from moment to moment, is this sense of a constant squeeze. And then he also defined the word nirvana or liberation or awakening or the awakened heart as the sense that there is enough, the sense of enoughness, nothing lacking, right? Because we can go through our life feeling and we do go through our life feeling like there's never enough. People can have a huge amount of money, it's not enough. People can have be in beautiful relationships, it's not enough. yeah And the sense of enoughness can only come within oneself. And then we can we can um, enjoy our lives whether we have a lot or a little, but we always feel this sense of enoughness within ourselves. And then, if you feel enough, you also have something to share and then you have the the joy of um of being able to share in without feeling you know the poverty around sharing that if somebody else is joyful there's not enough for me but actually when you know it within yourself it's it's easy you know, it's easy to share it's it's fun to share
0: i wanna I don't want to put you in a position of having to be like bad dog with me but um you know bad yogi bad dog but um I will just say that I find it very compelling, this concept of enoughness. I've had glimpses of it on retreat. Yep. And I can feel it in the little moments of equanimity that come up for me on day-to-day life. But a lot of my life still, even though I've been meditating for a while, is – insufficiency, competition, yeah, uh, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. But does that make me a bad dog? For-
1: <laughs> you are never a bad dog. <laughs> no, you can't be a bad dog. It's it's what a meditator thinks about themselves. From a teacher point of view, no one is either a good dog or a bad dog. We're just practitioners doing our best, right? Um, let me just read you a tiny bit of this. Yeah, is sure. that okay? Because yeah. you didn't read it yourself. When we are not in touch with enoughness, we are like hungry ghosts. In Buddhist cosmology, the concept of a hungry ghost implies a hunger that cannot be satisfied, a thirst that cannot be quenched. That's what you're talking about, really. Yeah. The image of the hungry ghost is of a being with a very large belly and a tiny mouth. So even though a person with hungry ghost mind is trying to nourish themselves, they can never eat Quite enough to feel full. That's a really important sentence, right? Trying to feed oneself, but never feeling full. The hunger or thirst cannot be quenched because they are looking in the wrong place for satiation. The impoverishment is inner rather than outer. What a hungry ghost needs is nourishment for the heart rather than food for the body. Not only do we think we do not have enough, we also think we can never do enough. Instead of giving a wholehearted attentiveness to what we are doing now, we often act half heartedly, reserving our full attention for an imaginary moment that may never come. When we lose ourselves in efforts to get something done, we also lose a sense of awe and mystery. We find ourselves lost in intensity, instead of being appreciative of the ordinary. In the awareness of enough, how could there be anything other? Than a richness of gratitude and appreciation.
0: Yeah, I love that. I just find myself in my own experience fearing yeah, yeah. between the two. Right,
1: right, right. So you want to nourish the moments when you do have that openness to enoughness. Those are the moments that you don't want to cling or grasp onto, because then, you know, then it moves into something too personal. I am enough. I have enough. You know, um, something too self centered. Right, but when you have those those moments to appreciate them and to be grateful for them, orients you towards having more of those moments. Because in a way, you're practicing enoughness. You know, whatever we practice, the fruit of that practice is going to be more of what we're practicing. So if you practice intensity, the fruit is going to be more intensity. If you practice anger, more anger. I mean, it's just it's just lawful, right? So if you practice enoughness then there will be more moments of enoughness.
0: That was great. Um, Before I let you go, can Mm -hmm. we take some questions from some listeners? Um, We have been doing this interview without headsets, but now we're putting them on so that we can listen to some questions.
3: Hi, Dan. This is Cassie from Philadelphia. I've been meditating for a couple months, and I just started recently listening to the podcast, and I love it. It's been really helpful, and Growing my meditation practice. Um, I meditate for about 10 minutes every day, and I feel like I've been improving a little bit on my technique. But something that started happening in the past couple weeks when I meditate is I feel like I almost start to dream during my meditation. Um, I am familiar with the noting technique and I use that when I have kind of racing thoughts, which happens pretty often. Um, but this seems kind of new to me. I'm not really thinking about anything real. I just start to have like, my imagination goes wild and I have these weird dreams, almost lucid dreams because I feel like I'm in them and I try to keep pulling myself out and my My imagination just always goes right back to these dreams and fake situations that I'm imagining myself in. And I'm just wondering if this is normal at all and if you have any insight on how I can kind of cut down on the dreams that I'm having while I'm meditating so that I can be a little bit more present in real life
0: and not in my dreams. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that um, our producers wisely saved that question for you because I wouldn't have (laughs) known how to begin answering
1: that. Okay. So I think it's very good. I think that what's probably happening is a greater degree of relaxation is entering in. And with that relaxation, more thinking, she's becoming more aware of the thinking that has always been happening that she has not been aware of. Should I speak right directly to her or to yeah, you? you? Yeah, you can speak to both. Yeah, okay. Either. Okay, or. hi. <laughs> 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 so, um, yeah, so I think, I think more uh, ease and relaxation has begun to enter in. And to not reject that, you don't have to follow it. You want to let awareness kind of pop you out of it. But when you, so what I mean by that is when you feel yourself drawn to it, like moth to the flame kind of feeling, see if you can simply be aware of the feeling tone of wanting to go back into it. But that's all you need to be concerned about. The fact that it's occurring, I think, simply indicates that there's a greater degree of letting be happening. And so you're more aware than you were before. And now you're rejecting it. You know, I, I shouldn't be. I'm not doing this correctly. But it's natural. It, there's a, there are different points in the practice where you aren't doing it, either correctly or <laughs> incorrectly. It is doing you. Mm-hmm. The practice is working on you. And that's where we have to let go of control. And that's really a huge insight, is the letting go of control. So much peace when we let go of control that we never had to begin with. Mm. So I think that's what's going on for you in this um, experience that you're having. Is that helpful?
0: Yeah. I mean, sometimes for me, I feel like well, I'm, I'm slipping into a dream, but it only just means I'm falling asleep.
1: It, yes, but even that falling asleep, if it's happening within the context of the sitting, it's a little bit different than just ordinary falling asleep. You can trust that too. Everybody thinks that... Um, sleepiness, because we talk about wakefulness so much that um, sleepiness is like the worst thing that can happen because it's in total opposition seemingly from wakefulness. But there's a lot one can learn from um, lethargy and sleepiness and not having enough energy as well if you can trust yourself to simply have a little bit of attentiveness on the sleepiness. I mean, be awake enough so that you're not completely under with it. What can you you just know that it's happening? Well, you can learn more about the fact that we don't like it and (laughs) the pushing it away is actually exhausting and makes you more fatigued. We can learn about a deeper level of wakefulness, actually, because if you can stay with it, stay with it, stay with it. And again, just a little bit. Of of attentiveness, not like I'm supposed to be completely attentive, but just to know it's happening, know it's happening, know it's happening. If you can be really patient in that way, um, sometimes you'll pop out of it into a deeper level of wakefulness than you had ever known before in your life. Mm. Yes. So the attractions to come.
0: I've sometimes wrestled with, you know, I I try to get in an hour of sitting a day. Mm-hmm. I used to do two, but uh, I got less ambitious recently, mm. and. I, my rule is – Sharon Salzberg actually gave me this. I, I just do it in whatever intervals I can throughout the day. I see. And so I'll try I to see. kind of track it a little bit. Yeah, and yeah, on yeah. My, like I, 10 minutes or – Yes. Yeah. Well, hopefully longer, but mm-hmm. 10 minutes if that's what's available. I yeah. Would, and I'll track it on my phone or just in my head. Right. Or my watch, whatever. And sometimes I'll be on a plane and uh, or anywhere and I'll just like straight up fall asleep. Like find that my, my torso is folded over my knees. Right.
1: Um, and yep. I, I've
0: wrestled with whether I uh, should I'll count that as meditation.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's a little too much counting. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, there you go.
1: <laughs> right, I do. I just think it's just in that world of counting, and um...
0: there's something very, to me, resonant about what you're saying,
2: mm-hmm.
0: because we do a lot of. We're in an era where there's an, a whole there's a whole term now that's called quantified self. That we, we are constantly counting our calories or how much sleep, what our heart rate is. Yes. We can get all of this data. And it's intriguing on some level. Mm. Let me use an <laughs> analogy with you and see what you think of this. I uh, stopped eating animal products about a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago. Uh, at first, I got really sick because I didn't know what I was doing. And then I got a nutritionist. And he got me to count calories and track my food mm. so we could look at Look at it. Okay. And actually, it was very useful for mm-hmm. a long time mm-hmm. because I really learned how to eat in a way that made me – I could be true to my ethical values without getting myself sick. Right. And now I'm realizing I don't want to count these stupid calories anymore, and it's actually getting a little unhealthy. I'm getting a little obsessive over it. I so see. let me port that back over yeah. to meditation. Yeah. I think it's actually – and <clears throat> I want you to tell me whether I'm hmm. – I want you to fact check me on this or – Yeah. That's probably the wrong word, but just check me on this. I think there's a certain amount of value in saying, especially at the beginning of a practice, you know, I'm going to aim for a certain amount of sitting. Mm. But after a while, the amount of like counting I'm doing is probably yes. crossed the line into counterproductive.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I think it moves into too evaluative um, of an approach, too much assessing, too much centered on 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 the eye. You know? Mm. Yeah. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that if you can open up that, really more fruitful practice could be happening, if you could kind of open that door beyond the evaluative and the assessing and the agendas and the hopes and the fears. If you could open that door a bit, at this point for you, because of your dedication and your interest. And sorry about the skepticism, because I sense a great deal of dedication. Yeah, <laughs> this. Comes through very clearly.
0: I'm not skeptical about the practice.
1: Uh-huh. You're skeptical about yourself. You're I'm skeptical.
0: skeptical generally. I don't believe things unless there's evidence.
1: <gasps> right, right, right. Okay. So that's 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 sane. That's sane yes. doubt. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's doubt that with things that should be doubtful. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's that's. I'm definitely not skeptical about the practice. Uh-huh. Unless you uh-huh.
0: tell me I'm going to get enlightened right away or something like that. Right. Then right, I'm skeptical.
1: right. 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 <laughs> yeah. So anyway, though, to um to re- see that as a pattern of mind could be really helpful in other words you have to have a certain kind of intentionality but then you have to let go in terms of what the results might be because they're out of your control so to have a clear sense of intention great and dedication great but then all the evaluation am i getting anywhere am i doing this right am i doing this correctly how am i how am i doing this is pretty neurotic <laughs> uh, yes. And I, I'm not saying that to you personally. It's an well, American be, it's neuroses. Well, yeah.
0: it may be generally true, but it is also mm-hmm. specifically true. So it's well taken. Okay. But let me ask you one last question. And I know we're supposed to be letting the. Yeah. The, the,
1: but let me also just say, quick, too. Of course. Go, to, go. To be aware of it as neuroses rather than as I need this or else I'm not going to get anywhere in my practice. You know, it's a very, very different perspective to move to seeing it as neuroses and making it into an object of meditation. Instead of I can't let this go, I'm I'm going to be too lazy. I'm never going to get it.
0: Well, that's what I was. My question was mm. going to be okay. I, my neurotic mm-hmm. self is wondering, is wants to ask you, yeah, the artist formerly <clears> known as Jan, um, <laughs> whether you, uh, whether you would worry that somehow, or I worry at least mm-hmm. that somehow if I let go of timing, yes, that I'll just I'll never get any sitting done. Yeah,
1: see, I would love you to try that. Because, I'm going to. Yeah. Because today. You, okay. <laughs> because you're ready for it. In the beginning, you do have to be a little bit more on track, but it's developmental. So at this point, everything points to the fact that for it to open up more for you, you need to you need to move with it rather than hold yourself back with the old thought structures.
0: I love it. Yeah. I do. Okay. Um, mm. All right. So I'm going to stop selfishly gobbling mm. up your time to ask personal selfish questions. Let, let's get the not, second Not selfish
1: because, you know, it's it's really everybody has the same questions.
2: Hi, Dan. My name is Petra. I'm a big fan of yours from Finland. So your word is spreading. <laughs> um, yeah. So one of the obstacles that I'm having with my practice is uh, to understand what a mental problem solving Uh, process should look like sort of inside my head so one of the most common uh, meditation techniques is the noting as you very well know so once I learn how to note my thoughts I can create a distance between them and myself and then I can not engage with unhelpful thoughts okay fantastic but decision making and problem solving uh, hugely important things in the daily life of a normal human being. So I don't always know what is an unhelpful thought and what is not. It takes some time and reflection and thinking, like, what are these thoughts? What is Why am I having these thoughts? And which one I should follow, which one I shouldn't follow? So what does that process should look like, you know? Like, for example, in uh, NLP... Uh, I'm sure you know what that is, so you can make images black and white and shrink them in in front of you sort of visually to make them feel smaller once you think that you don't want to engage with that that thought or whatever. but I get a feeling that all these mindfulness teachers and websites they talk very little about this specific question that I have, or have I completely misunderstood something about? mindfulness and meditation. Thank you so much and keep up the good work. Bye.
0: Thank you. Uh, So I would say just to clarify one term there that I think you got hung up on and I'm, I'm getting a little hung up on, but I'll say something before you answer the question. I think she was referencing... NLP, which is neuro linguistic programming. Okay. I don't know anything about NLP. Yeah. She talked about somehow shrinking the thought or something like that. Okay. So maybe set that aside. Okay. uh, And answer the rest of the question. Okay.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, this very much has to do with daily life practice, where we are in the situation where we do have to solve problems over and over again. And if we abandon that, we are trying to live in this other world that is not practical and not real and so it's part of our meditation practice to come to the um question of how to solve problems but from a meditative point of view so in our usual um, non-meditative approach perhaps we're always trying we we have this concept of this is a problem and it needs to be solved from a net from a and that's true that's true From a meditative point of view, which is equally true, we want to bring our attention to the sensations that are happening in the body. I'm not a real fan of the noting, I want to say. I did it kind of as boot camp for a couple of years with Upandita in my early years of practice. Great
0: Burmese teacher, Upandita. Yep, I
1: did it, and it was very helpful, very useful, but... It was something that changed as as the practice developed, recognizing that um, we have to think, we have to use thinking. And the point in solving problems is, are we being used by our thoughts, or can we use our thoughts in a wise way, right? So to come to particular issues in our lives, to... Be free from the ways that thought has its hold over us. This is um this is meditative development, you know, because thought does have its way with us until it doesn't. And if you continue to practice, you will come into a um, clearer space in which you're not drawn to thinking in the same way. You're not as enchanted by your thoughts in the same way as you were, which means that you can actually think. <laughs> in a, you know, it brings us back to thinking, but in a wise and and thoughtful way. And I think one of the best ways to use thinking is to meditatively question, to bring up a question that is a meditative question for you, that allows you to hold the problem without thinking in conditioned ways about it, you know, because that's what we do. Are conditioned ancient ways of habitual. thinking habitual, habitual, exactly. Yep. And then we're just you know following, following like a gerbil around a cage. We don't get out of it, or we solve that problem. Then there's another problem. Then we solve that problem. There's another problem. But to come at problems from a meditative point of view means to ask a question that is bigger than the problem. And something that does happen in meditation is that problems have a way of resolving themselves or dissolving as a quote problem in our willingness to hold what we're calling a problem in a different way. So it's it's a it's a shift. It's a real shift, and it's one of the fundamental shifts I think that happens in our meditative life, in our life as meditation, is how we approach what we call problems
0: so let me see if i can see if i can sum that up a little bit okay thank you i may be doing it no i may not get this close to what you were saying so let's um Mm -hmm. let's make sure i land it yeah a lot of people i think there's a confusion among meditators because in formal meditation practice you're quote-unquote not supposed to be thinking Mm-hmm. you're you're supposed to be feeling the raw data of your breath or you're mindfully aware of all sensory input including thoughts but you're not supposed to be carried away by the thoughts, right right mm-hmm.
1: um, right no problem that lots of thoughts are happening of course but you just know that it's thinking that's right good
0: so then people get a little confused okay well when i'm not meditating but i do need to do some problem solving mm-hmm. what's the role of my thinking mind now yeah and i think that the point you made that I think answers the question is, once we learn not to get so enchanted by all of the random, wild, yeah. habitual yeah. Right. thinking process uh, that that goes on in, in our formal practice, mm-hmm. then once we're not meditating anymore, our whole, our capacity for thought has improved. Yes. Because we're yes. focused on the new and original.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Our thinking is actually more fruitful. Yes. Right. Do you mind if I read a little bit about meditative um, questioning? Life questions are precious. They are precious jewels in our lives. I'm talking about the problems that we have. We need to respect our life questions and have great patience with them. Although there may not be an intellectual answer that satisfies, there can indeed be a resolution, an ending of confusion. In other words, whatever it is, the problem is no longer a problem. The issue simply dissolves. It is important to understand that our relationship to issues and problems can change. The same situation may arise with all of the same particularities, but our relationship to it may change so profoundly that something that bothered us immensely in the past doesn't bother us at all anymore. The issue has resolved itself completely, not by being ignored or judged, but through being held with loving awareness. All questions, even such a question as what is the meaning of life, are resolved in that we no longer think about or experience angst in relationship to what was once an immense issue for us. The issue does not arise in the mind as one that needs to be thought about or pondered. So that's a little bit of what I was pointing to. But I do think a question oftentimes is better than... um, than the pondering or the ruminating about problems, you know, like how can I hold this differently? How can I look at this differently? Um, what is needed right now, and what's needed right now might not be thinking about the problem, but might be I need more calm right now, mm. so that there's more spaciousness to be able to think about the problem in a fruitful way.
0: So, could you use is that, that in a business, in a meeting, for example, when? ostensibly, we're there to, I don't know, figure something out yeah, specific, yeah. Mm-hmm. but maybe one you could ask a larger question yes. and let the room kind of sit with that? Yes.
1: Yes. I think it could be really helpful. I have a whole chapter in here on meditative questioning, and it's kind of questions that you don't want to ask. Like, why am I such a jerk is not really such a, you know, a helpful question to ask. There's endless answers to that, right? But a question, so we ask the wrong questions sometimes. And we we think that there's going to be an answer to that that is actually going to be intelligent or sane, but there are other questions, life questions, that are really helpful to continue to ask. And then there are meditative questions like who you know who is experiencing this problem, you know, really really cutting through in a different way. And then in a meeting where you have to make decisions, there's a different sense in the meeting. There's more um, relaxation. There's more of a capacity to listen and respond. One isn't quite as caught up with finding a particular result. And so maybe the result is something completely outside the box Mm -hmm. and completely creative. Yeah? That's cool. (laughs)
0: Um, In closing, we do this, we have this little um, tradition on the show, which is we usually close with something we call jokingly the plug zone. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> so to let you plug everything, remind us of the name of the book, okay. where can we find you on the internet? Also, uh, tell us a little bit, something about uh, CIMC, the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center.
1: Okay. So my new book is called The Magnanimous Heart, and the subtitle is Compassion and Love, Loss and Grief, Joy and Liberation. I thought I would go for it. <laughs> <laughs> it was published by Wisdom Publications. And Wisdom Publications is composed of many meditators who work at this publishing company. They are just so wonderful and inspired. And when I when I have to mention them, instead of like Scheiman and Schulster suggested I do this or that, I can say Wisdom suggested that <laughs> I do this or that. So it's my little joke, right? Oh, wisdom. Um the book is is available via Amazon. And Um, And I'm kind of out and about talking about it because it's really a body of teachings having to do with when I first began to meditate up till now. So the idea is for it to be an honest and authentic rendering of a meditative journey. Um, So not something idealized, not something uh, that is not realizable, but um, an offering, an offering. From from my heart to yours. I'm laughing at the heart part again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was going to let you get away with that. Didn't realize it was a joke. Um, and are you on the internet, social media, anything like that? I'm
1: not on social media. Um, you. you can you can look me up. You know, if you plug my name in, you'll find um, different things, reviews for the book, and and this kind of thing. I teach at a center in Cambridge, Massachusetts called the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. And it's in, as I said before, it's an urban uh, city dharma center. And so people come for classes, for drop-in classes, for talks. And um, we have non-residential retreats, a number of them every year, that I am in great favor of. Because it's quite interesting to sit for a day, like 9 to 7 or something, and then to go home at night, go to your home, get caught up by, you know, your pillows and your partner and your this and your that, and then come back the next day and um, recognize what has happened because of even just one day of practice. So these residential retreats are much more powerful um, than they sometimes appear to be. You know, because in our lineage, residential retreats are the big thing. And I do, of course, I teach at the Insight Meditation Society, too. And I teach longer retreats, and I believe in them. And I I really, um, IMS is a wonderful institution.
0: If you go on the right day, you might catch my mom at CIMC. Um, (laughs) uh, Ryan, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Great job.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much. You're a really, really wonderful um, interviewer and practitioner.
0: Thank you. All righty, big thanks to Narayan. If you want, by the way, to donate to the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, please go to cambridgeinsight.org, cambridgeinsight.org, and click on the donate now button. They do a lot of good work there, most of which is funded by donations. And uh, before we go, no voicemails, obviously. We just did that with Narayan. Uh, before we go, I just do I do want to, as always, say thank you to the folks who do make the show possible Ryan Kessler, Sam, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, Mike Dees, working the boards. He's the engineer this morning as I record the intro and outro for the show. Big thanks to our podcast insiders panel, the folks who give us feedback every week. Big thanks to you for listening. If you like this show, you want to do us a solid, go uh, rate us, review us, talk about us on social media. That's always extremely helpful. It gets uh, the word out about the show and helps us justify our existence, etc., etc. et cetera. And uh, after having said all of that, I do want to say that we will be back next week